You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. There's a lot of poetry in the Bible. Anyone who flips through its pages can see how many have that telltale jagged edge of printed verse. But it's not only proportion. The weightiest moments, the loftiest sayings of Scripture are poetic, especially the voice of God, whether through the word of the prophets or the incarnate word himself. There's also a lot of Bible in poetry, or at least the poetry of the English language. God's own stories, symbols, and style are deeply ingrained in the poetry of English speakers from the earliest recorded instance. As David Jeffrey puts it, the collective voice of our poetic tradition in English discloses a mode of imagination and creativity in dialogue with a precedent voice, God's, in the Bible. I'm David Grubbs, and in this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, I'll be talking with Dr. David Jeffrey, Distinguished Professor of Literature and the Humanities at Baylor University, and author of Scripture and the English Poetic Imagination, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Jeffrey. Thank you. Glad to be here. Your book, Scripture in the English Poetic Imagination, begins with, uh, logically, begins with Scripture and that first chapter on poetry and the voice of God. I found that a, a fascinating place to begin, not with, not with English poetry, but with God as a poet. Why is the main voice of God in Scripture poetry, do you think? What purposes does that accomplish? Well, I think maybe the why, and this is a speculation, I think we don't have God here to ask about this, but <laughs> the speculation that I would have is is that as he says uh, through his prophet Isaiah, his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. In other words, um, trying to reduce uh, what he uh, says in Scripture uh, and in other ways to the kind of way that we would organize thought is inherently going to be a defective exercise. So what happens in Scripture is that uh, when God speaks, uh, when the prophet will put his words in quotation marks to put our way of thinking on it, uh, then he speaks in language which forces us to reflect and to recognize that the metaphorical character of the way he speaks is inviting us to go deeper into what the Scripture calls a masculine uh, reflection, a kind of regurgitation and thinking over of the possible resonances and depth in what he's saying. Okay. As I was reading, I had uh, a question that kept sort of percolating at the back of at the back of my mind. Um, one of the one of the things that chapter does well is. Uh, I think help us to encounter those passages of divine poetry uh, in a, a meditative and a devotional way to think about how the poetry is pointing us towards um, worship, really. But what is the nature of that divine poetry? Is this um, is this God's divine accommodation to human language, kind of a kind of theophany through speech? Or are these human authors who are representing God's message in the highest language they know, which is poetry? Um, which, which side of the inspiration divide do you think the poetry sits on? 
Well, it's, I think it's a, maybe a bit of both and um, myself. But one of the things we do notice characteristically is that at high moments of um, what we might call God's emergence or presence directly in the text, uh, he very often speaks uh, in some of the most eloquent poetry that there is in Scripture. For example, this is true of Isaiah, it's true of Job. And even when God is ticked off, as he is with Job in chapter 38 and Job's friends, uh, he speaks in an astonishingly eloquent poetic language, uh, partly to show the inadequacy of the way Job and his friends have been thinking. Uh, and so he asks a series of questions rather than answers Job's question. He basically says, you don't have the categories or the basis for understanding what really has been going on since the dawn of creation. Uh, and that means that your questions, prosaic as they are, looking for propositional answers as they do, is not going to cut the mustard in terms of the truth of who God is. Hmm. Moving on to a uh, the medieval section, which... Uh, is is your own kind of uh, earliest background, correct? I spent a lot of my life doing medieval studies, yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I, I, I am also sort of, in, I'm, I'm in that area, uh, especially Old English. Um, so I've, I've benefited from, uh, benefited from your work in that. Uh, but one area that I had not ventured before is the, the uh, Bonaventure and Franciscan preaching, and so that that particular essay was was really interesting to me, um, because Bonaventure is, and he, as you point out, he seems like such a standout voice in that era in the way that he positively assesses the 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 value to theology of our sensory experience of nature and also of human art what underlies that uh, I, I guess a typical appreciation for those things in in that period uh, yeah that's a great question it, it, I think you know we we think of medieval uh, thinking about uh, God we think about medieval theology largely in terms of the tremendous Im impact that the scholastic movement has had upon Western thinking uh, theologically, and there the great figure, of course, would be Aquinas. But in fact, that's not how the gospel uh, comes into a vibrant uh, relationship with popular culture. Uh, it's actually fairly much uh, an elite cultural experience within the universities at places like the Sorbonne and Oxford, that this kind of rarefied but very valuable scholastic discourse takes place. What happened with the Franciscan revolution uh, spiritually was Francis's insight that the Lord himself has identified with the very most humble of people, uh, was born in a stable, uh, was uh, born to uh, a woman who came from what we would regard as the peasant class, uh, is an indication of what God thinks about when uh, he is designing his salvation for the world. He's not thinking about, you know, being able to communicate to elites uh, who think in, in, in very fine philosophical terms. He's thinking primarily, first, as the gospel makes clear, 
and speaking just in such a way to people uh, who are of ordinary status that they can begin to understand something of his glory. The Franciscans seized upon this, and uh, when they began their uh, evangelical reclamation of a kind of um, basically a decrepit Catholicism in northern Italy and southern France, uh, what they did was to uh, write poems, write songs, transforming the gospel message into an idiom which was accessible to everybody. And their behavior was something that evangelicals ought to appreciate, because what they would do is they would go as a band of brothers into a village, and uh, they would have uh, guitars, a medieval equivalent of guitars, and they would begin to sing these songs, and people would gather because they were interested in the music. Uh, and then at a certain point, they would realize, my goodness, this music is about uh, uh, the gospel. It's about uh, the Christian faith. And at a certain point, then, you know, Brother Juniper, whoever, would jump up on a stone fence and begin to preach. <laughs> so it's a very evangelical gesture that causes the Franciscans to be interested in popular media in the arts. The arts could break through to most people in a way that philosophy might not. I, f I found this chapter so so interesting. Uh, one of the one of the angles that uh, I was I was thinking as I as I approached it is the the importance um, the prominence in for a lot of theologians these days in approaching uh, especially the the history of salvation, sacred history, um, from the perspective of drama and uh, kind of theodrama as this uh, kind of paradigm of doing, of, of thinking about uh, narrative in systematics today. Um, were the, you, you say that the Franciscans were adopting these, these methods um, mainly as a way of getting people to pay attention, but um, is there also a kind of deep, deep alignment um, with the content of their message, given that they're they're turning to poetry, they're turning to to drama, um, as as human media for depicting a message which has poetry and drama at its core? That's a yeah. I think that very much that's a, the sort of thing that's going on. We don't have as much of a record about their. Uh, commitment to methodology, as we might like, right? We have rather uh, the texts that they produce, which were either the drama texts or the poetry texts, and we have, uh, you know, some sense of what they were doing. Uh, for example, in the uh, sermons, uh, in w which use the poetry, uh, sermons uh, by uh, theologians sometimes, often just by regular uh, clerics, which would actually say why the drama or the poetry was an important insight into the way uh, the gospel actually is and teaches. So there's a guy named William Milton, for example, at the time of the York Cycle plays, who gave a sermon, uh, and he was obviously a theologian. He was called Sacre Pagine Professore. Uh, so he was a theologian, but what he wanted to say is, Jesus Christ is God-made man, he, he enters into the flesh, uh, and the Word becomes flesh in him. Therefore, the drama, the dramatization of the gospel story, and he's referring, of course, to the cycle which 
starts with creation and runs right to the last judgment. The dramatization of the gospel allows us to encounter uh, the word made flesh in Jesus. That's exciting. Dante and Chaucer are probably the most familiar uh, names that our, our, our listeners would, would think of when they think of medieval poetry that's dealing with biblical themes. And your chapter on how the two of them approach the Sermon on the Mount um, was also revealing. So what are the, the different angles that they take on incorporating the Sermon on the Mount into into their own poetic projects, and what, what, why do they handle them in those different ways? What does that show us about the way Dante and Chaucer think about what the Sermon on the Mount is as a as a text? Well, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that Dante, this magnificent poet, uh, was essentially a philosophical poet uh, and a catechetical poet. By that, I mean. Uh, his framework of reference was received Catholic doctrine. He thought very much in terms of the way Catholic doctrine was communicated by the Church, and the biblical uh, content in that uh, he he treated as an essence essentially uh, subordinate to the catechetical or the doctrinal formulations of the Church. So when he used uh, uses scripture such as passages from uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or uses the Beatitudes uh, in in uh, the Commedia, it's always as uh, uh, it is contextualized by Catholic doctrine. That's not true for Chaucer. Uh, Chaucer, uh, of course, grew up in the uh, and and became a mature contributor to uh, intellectual life uh, in the era where Wycliffe was the most prominent uh, professor at Oxford. They were both sponsored by the same patron. It's almost certainly true that they would have known each other. Uh, But Wycliffe's big emphasis was on translation of the Bible so that the ordinary Christian uh, would have a rooting and grounding in the text, the literary text of Scripture, and that's the way Wycliffe uh, thought we ought to understand it. This is a literary text written for our salvation uh, and Chaucer, I think, gravitated very much to that as a poet. So when he incorporates scripture, it's as part of an overall paradigm of understanding of human nature, uh, the nature of human failing, uh, the need for reconciliation, uh, the fact that we are all in the process of a gradual movement toward uh, sanctification or holiness if we are dis- discerning about our spiritual calling but that these things happen in stages, uh, that people misunderstand Scripture sometimes, that they misinterpret it, or they get it right. And so in the Canterbury Tales, he gives us a panoply of characters who show uh, how important Scripture is, uh, show how it's possible to misinterpret it, think of the wife of Bath, uh, and show how it's possible to have one's life transformed by it. That's why he ends in a sermon by the parson which is essentially a call to repentance, which draws upon the scripture that has been laid in in the Canterbury Tales since the general prologue. In that sense, you can say, I think, uh, honestly, uh, that Chaucer was a biblical poet. He was a poet for whom uh, the primary text 
was scripture. He used all kinds of other texts, as all poets do. But the scriptures were the primary text for him. You cannot say that uh, for Dante in the same way. For Dante, the primary text is Virgil, and it's supplemented by um, Thomas Aquinas, sometimes even a bit of Bonaventure. But primarily, it's, you know, the Roman tradition reinterpreted in the light of Catholic faith. So the way uh, the way that Dante is approaching the text is the way that the Sermon on the Mount has been embedded in these other in these other structures and other schemes as a um, a thematic text or a proof text, something on that nature. Yeah, I would say proof text may be uh, maybe the wrong phrase here, but certainly that what's important for Catholic tradition in the Middle Ages, even as it is now is the Church's role in traditioning or handing on Scripture, mm-hmm. and it hands it on uh, structured into what we regard as systematic theology now. Ch- Chaucer is not receiving a systematic theology. It's not that he doesn't know any of it, but Chaucer, un- unlike Dante, is saying, let's go back at Fontes, let's go back to the biblical text and see what riches are there. Uh, for us, and, and employ those things directly, not mediated uh, through a systematic, uh, you know, schema. So, in your in your assessment of it, Chaucer is, in spite of his um, kind of the embedded critiques of Lollardy in the Canterbury Tales, you see him as as more sympathetic to Wycliffe's uh, Wycliffe's heirs than maybe is, is sometimes argued. Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but uh, in the period right after uh, Chaucer's lifetime, uh, for the next 20 or 30 years, there was active persecution of Lollards, and you could be convicted and burned, and it did happen once, for owning a copy of the Canterbury Tales. What that tells you is that the contemporaries of that time identified Chaucer very strongly with that kind of biblical movement. Uh, similar to the way Pierce Plowman came to be linked with Long. Absolutely the same, yeah. Okay. In When Chaucer quotes um, the Bible in English or presents the biblical text in his English verse, is is he referring to uh, is he referring to the Lollard translations or is he doing his own translation? I know he's perfectly capable of doing his own translation. He is, and I think he he does. I think he translates from the Latin, which is what everybody did, including Wycliffe. No access to the Greek or Hebrew yet, um, but there are places where the elocution uh, sounds suspiciously like Wycliffe's. Uh, uh, translation, uh, really the translation by his graduate students, uh, which was right. available just at the end of Chaucer's life. When he's working on the Canterbury Tales? Yes, sir. Awesome. <laughs> See, I'm, I, I, teach, I, I, I teach Canterbury Tales every, every semester in a, in a sophomore gen ed course, and so I'm, I'm getting material. <laughs> okay. Uh, shifting... Uh, I had a similar question about Henry VIII. Uh, you had an essay on uh, you're, you're focused on um, courtly love. Uh, the title was uh, "Irony and Misreading: Courtly and Love and Marriage According to Henry VIII." I was especially interested in the Henry VIII section um, and his 
his production of a Bible that had actually a very limited selection of texts. <laughs> um, I was wondering, the way that you read it is, uh, the way that you present it in this article, you're looking at what are the implications of the text that he emits um, on his his own moral choices like what text is he admitting <laughs> from this from this uh bible that right. he has published <laughs> that that would have been the ones that point a finger at him um did he have any any larger pattern that he was following in selecting those texts were they were they was he picking the books that were most common in the lectionary or what what was shaping that not the lectionary for sure uh, you know, Henry okay. VIII's a really dubious case. Uh, as you know, he was uh, <laughs> regarded because of his attack on Luther, uh, on uh, his defense essentially of seven sacraments rather than two. Uh, he, he was uh, made a defender of the faith by, by Pope Leo, uh, something that Catholic Church came later much to regret. Uh, but it, it wasn't because they regarded him as inadequate in terms of his learning. Henry VIII was extraordinarily learned, and, and he did have a very firm grip uh, on um, the whole of biblical tradition, uh, as much as was possible for a layman to have in those days. But what he was doing in that preparation of a Bible for himself uh, was, you know, doing what Thomas Jefferson did. He was reading it and saying, ah, some of these things I don't like there. Not the same principles as Jefferson, who you remember was eliminating miraculous events and so on. His concern was indeed to sort of have a laundered version of Scripture, which he would authorize. And it admits, here's the significant one, but there are many others like unto it. He admits uh, Nathan, the prophet's uh, exposure of David's sin through his parable. Well, (laughs) that was an apropos too close to home. And there are other parts uh, that he emitted from Scripture, uh, which were clearly designed to muffle or mute uh, the um, authority of Scripture regarding uh, uh, matters uh, of the moral life, particularly uh, sexual life. Hmm. Yeah, especially with that prologue that you quote where he's talking about uh, the, uh, the Mosaic Law demanding that kings read and copy out for themselves uh, the law that they might be continually mm-hmm. <laughs> meditating on how to be good kings. Um, I, yeah, I don't think Moses said that they need to do it with scissors. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Um, shifting to uh, Dunn and Herbert. Um, now we're in the era in which um, Almost everyone is, is in in this in the English culture is looking at the Bible primarily in English. It would have been accessible for Chaucer, but rare. Um, uh, if I remember rightly, Henry VIII's Bible is a Vulgate, correct? But, mm-hmm, then, but then later he he has English translations. Um, for Dunn and Herbert, are they working? Are they working with the King James Bible, or are they working with Geneva or one of the earlier Bibles? Do you know? I think that uh, Herbert was working with the bishops uh, and the Geneva more than the King James, but he also began to be aware of the King James, and you can catch 
uh, echoes of the King James uh, in in his writing. Uh, Dunn is working primarily with the Geneva Bible, but he also was reading the Latin Vulgate, and uh, he was uh, you know competent to, to read the Greek uh, texts that had been prepared by Erasmus as well. So all uh, you know, they um, those two guys are, are people who, uh, when they sat down to read, had lots of books on the desk, desk not just one. And this would be true when they were reading Scripture as well. Uh, Dunn makes it clear enough in his sermons uh, just uh, how he is comparing uh, the text as it is rendered in the polyglot uh, Bible of of Theodore de Bays with the commentaries on the side. Sometimes he's quoting those directly. He doesn't give you footnotes like he ought to, but you can go and find them. Uh, what he's doing is he's looking at the way in which the Latin is reflected in reflective of the Greek, um, he doesn't have any Hebrew, but he's definitely con- interested in Hebrew. And uh, when he quotes uh, DeBase, sometimes he'll quote DeBase's uh, comment uh, on a Hebrew text and put the Hebrew text in the margin, so it looks like he's more learned than he is. But he trusts <laughs> DeBase uh, very much, who uh, DeBase was Calvin's uh, number one assistant. But he also reads Cornelius Alapide, and Lapide was a... Uh, a Catholic commentator uh, of a great uh, intellectual stature, uh, did wonderful uh, work, and um, and he's working exclusively from the Latin text. And and so uh, it's really interesting to see a guy like Dunn, who's in a sense poised between the Protestant and the Catholic tradition, working with both. So he's able because of that because that that fact in his biography to be familiar with sources that his uh, Church of England comrades in his day might not necessarily have had access to or been familiar with. Yeah, he would have been amongst the special group uh, who uh, really made it their business to learn languages. He was really much more of an academic than the average uh, cl- clergyman. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, somebody like Lancelot Andrews, of course, you're dealing with a clergyman who has a magnificent command of the languages. Uh, but but that's a rarity, a real rarity. Uh, most of them are very happy to work in translate with the translation. Although there's nobody that's hard for us to imagine now. There's nobody who doesn't have good Latin who is uh, able to become a clergyman in those days. Right. You uh, you deal us for uh, a good amount of a, a couple pages with done. Uh, Dunn's analysis of the God of the Bible as reflected in God's language, and uh, very much like uh, the first chapter of the book. Um, but the way that Dunn puts it uh, is, I, I think, something that a lot of a lot of evangelicals, if you just drop this quote on them, um, they might uh, they might feel a little skittish. Um, how is it devout, devout, and not impious? For done to call the God of the Bible a metaphorical God. Yeah, well, you have to understand the context in which he says that. Maybe I should have quoted the longer context, but he's 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 having a revelation there, an understanding of God, which he hasn't noticed before, which is that God does not speak simply in commandments or in a propositional in a series of propositions. God reveals Himself. Uh, for example, Jesus in the New Testament, uh, and his intentions uh, by uh, telling parables. 
And this is uh, shocking. And he thinks about this, and then he realizes that in, indeed uh, this is also a pattern uh, in the Old Testament. God speaks poetically. And it's for him a kind of uh, an epiphanic um, moment uh, that he understands that, that God's typical voice is not limited to just straight propositional discourse like the theologians uh, uh, sometimes want it to be. And so I don't think he's at all challenging there the um, verbal inspiration of Scripture or anything like that. He's saying the words in Scripture sometimes uh, are very metaphoric, and they're often there that way precisely uh, when the Lord is wanting to say things which are really important. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, in the Gospels we are told that uh, nothing, nothing significant in Jesus' teaching uh, was was offered without parables, and uh, and therefore we're, we're understanding that the things which are most important for our grasp of his sayings, his commandments, is to be able to understand and read in that way. Dunn got that. That's that's really exciting. Um, the the emphasis on. Uh, metaphor that metaphor is necessary to to hear God and that God because God is using metaphor and you mentioned this that that for done acknowledging that metaphor doesn't mean that you're not taking scripture literally you are taking that that literal metaphorical sense is in many texts that is the primary literal sense that's correct uh, yeah we don't uh, go ahead I'm trying to remember. Uh, doesn't Wycliffe make some similar moves? Good for you. Okay. And, and here's the interesting thing. He, he actually seems to have learned this from Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. Um, Aquinas observed this. Uh, in, and by the way, Aquinas in his biblical commentaries is often the best Aquinas there is. Uh, but Aquinas observes that sometimes uh, the... A figural sense, as when Jesus teaches in parables, is the literal sense, right. uh, or the literal sense is the figural sense, and and therefore, uh, and he observes also that people, of course, understand that very readily in some cases and don't understand it so well in others. Wycliffe was very much interested in that and very much uh, believed it, uh, so that he um, would use that, in fact, as a as a kind of a defense uh, for uh, for for reading the Bible, and for ordinary people reading the Bible, because, because he believed that ordinary people had an ability to read poetry uh, in a way that the theologians didn't. Uh, that is, they understood <laughs> this kind of discourse in, their, in the course of their regular life, even in what we would today call their entertainment life. Uh, that sometimes we uh, say things, we speak, as, as the uh, literary theorists of Chaucer's time would say, uh, we speak ironically. Uh, and, and irony for them means you say one thing, but you mean something more. Uh, you say one thing, but you can even mean another. And so uh, one of the standard dictionary defini definitions uh, in, in Latin I I I of, of what uh, irony is, is aliennoloquium um, uh, is the word for, for irony there. One thing is said, sonat. Another thing is understood. Um, and you, so you hear the sound, you know the word, but a person means more than that. Uh, and Jesus is inflecting in his parables very often in that way. Uh, allegory is a form of irony. Uh, 
It's saying one thing, but meaning much more, or saying even something opposite. Uh, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, irony in the scriptures will be a form of mockery uh, of what people who deny that there is a God uh, will say. And uh, it's a form of exposing folly. I feel like that's something so important for Protestants, especially uh, pro- uh, Christians in the Protestant tradition these days to appreciate. Cause I know that whenever I've encountered uh, discussions of uh, figurative or metaphorical or allegorical approaches to biblical texts, it's almost always framed uh, as this was the thing that they did in the Middle Ages in order to keep the 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 ordinary folk away from the plain sense, and uh, an an appreciation for the ways in which uh, the metaphor, the symbol, uh, the poetic language is part of the plain sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I, that feels like a very helpful balance. Well, when Jesus uh, uses parables, there's a wonderful kind of little seminar he gives, right, in Matthew 13. And in this uh, seminar with his disciples, you remember the disciples come up after he's been teaching in parables, and they say basically to him, why are you talking to them in parables? Uh, you know, they're really saying, come on, come on, uh, boss, uh, make it plain for them. <laughs> and he says, I am speaking in parables because to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to them has not been given. There's no point in my speaking to them in direct discourse. They know all the law. Those Pharisees do nothing else but review the law and think about various ways to make, uh, you know, revisions on it that will be subtly, sophisticatedly, uh, you know, uh, to their purpose. But But that's not you. So you... I'm speaking in this way because it will distinguish uh, the, the person that really wants to know the truth from the person that doesn't want to know the truth. The person who hears a parable, uh, the parable of the sower, the person who hears the parable um, of, of that sort wants to know what it means. And Jesus lays out, by the way, that's a pretty straightforward allegory in that case. But he, he puts other parables before them, which are not straightforward allegories. They require reflection like the one in the same chapter, I think, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of air come, and the air come and make nests in its branches. Really? <laughs> what are we to make of that? And so we have to think about that. We have to absorb it and uh, uh, and we have to understand that you can't reduce. You can, Jesus never makes it clear that one parable, one uh, allegory answers everything. He immediately gives him another parable. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like a, the leaven in which a woman takes and hides in some lumps of dough. Really? Yeah. You know, and then there's another one. Um, and, and that's, of course, when Jesus uh, is very serious about what he's uh, delivering, as he always is. And, and, the, and the, uh, the gospel writer, the evangelist says, okay, I get it. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Oh, it's been hidden. How is it going to be revealed? 
by a series of analogies laid out one after the other, which require you to compare, contrast, reflectively synthesize, try to come at the truth underneath them all uh, as you would by uh, a comparative method. And you have to stay with Jesus. You have to listen to Jesus. You have to uh, absorb these texts in relationship to each other. I think often preaching does a disservice to Jesus by just extracting one parable and making a whole sermon out of that. Usually they're in a series. Yeah. And, and the series is, is trying to teach you something. So that's why I called that chapter a seminar. And, and you, you remember that, you know, Jesus will go on to say that, um, well, you know, if you listen to these things and you take them to heart, uh, well, uh, you'll be like the wise man that builds his house upon a rock. We all say, well, we get that. <laughs> but that's, that is a metaphor, right? You'll be like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock, and the rains come, it's not going not gonna to get you. But if you're foolish and you build on lesser foundations like sand, uh, you are definitely going to be flooded out. So the, the culmination is clear. This is the bottom line. But how do you get to be wise? By thinking and reflecting and comparing the texts that Jesus is offering for our reflection. You can't get it. You can't get to be wise uh, in a simplistic way. And Dunn and Herbert, you, uh, their their own use, their own peculiar and fascinating, ingenious use of metaphor uh, is learning from the master in that sense. Oh, absolutely. And you see it so clearly in Herbert's poems, like the collar, you know? Yeah. Or love one and two and three. I mean, those poems are just grasping, you know, because they're all offering epiphanic moments when the poet is finally, you know, dragged to a point at the end of the poem where he says, "Oh, I get it." Right, but he's been dragged through metaphor and analogy and reflection, and he's thinking about scripture all the time. Herbert is when he's writing. In fact, he's quoting scripture all the time uh, when he's writing. Jesus, in a sense, has been his his. Uh, is poet teacher. Hmm. I love that Think, thinking about the collar as, as uh, especially as a parable is it it makes perfect sense when 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 you say that you know that it's it's as if you are uncovering this familiarity that I'd always observed like when you see you know, f f when you find out that the person that you're talking to is related to another person that you know, and suddenly their features, <laughs> mm -hmm. their that that familial resemblance becomes clear. Um, yep. When you say the collar, it's a parable. And I go, oh yeah, that's exactly how that works. Um, I, I appreciate it too the way that your chapter emphasizes Herbert as a pastoral thinker, a pastoral yep. theologian, so that this this poetry that we know it was private, we know that he didn't, you know, that, that most of it, you know, probably no one saw it ex until after he uh, had passed away, and, right. and yet it, it reveals this, um, uh, this, this pastoral concern, um, maybe preserving in some sense the sermons we wish we had. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I would love to have a Herbert sermon. Um, I really would. Uh, but no, it's a prayer diary. 
um, and um, he intended it that way. But you know, at the end, when he he said to his friend, "Well, if you think there's anything here, uh, you know, okay, but if not, burn the thing." What he's really indicating is his audience all along has been the Lord. Uh, yeah. He's been talking to the Lord confessionally. He's been talking to the Lord in gratitude. He's been talking to the Lord in intercession for others, and he makes his his prayers are he turns into poems. That's uh, just the nature of the man, you know. He um, he prays in poetry, and I would say in this sense, George Herbert is a little bit like the psalmist. He's a, he's a bit of a man after God's own heart. Mm. I think when the psalmist is called a man after God's own heart, uh, part of what it's meant is is that he, in all of his uh, incompleteness and so on, yearns for God and strives to be like unto him and strives to understand him in his own terms and to address him in a language which is meet and right. Uh, and so the Psalms are for us, you know, the greatest prayer diary uh, in the world, uh, you know, and, and we, we who pray the Psalms are entering into a, a species of prayer in which the language is attuned to the king who the poet serves. And that's the way Herbert saw his task. That's, that's great. The King James Bible is obviously enormously important in English literature. And you, in the chapter where you talk about the King James, you, you follow that thread um, through, uh, in, in, many, in many cases, into to poets and texts that uh, I had not connected. Um, the, the King James too, but what about the King James Bible? Uh, this is a point that you make, but what about it seems to capture so well the beauty of biblical, especially Hebrew poetry? What does the King James get right that some of the other translations now or even at its own time don't seem to quite get? Well, that's a uh... That's a question that's actually easier to answer than to have people understand the answer. But here's the key. The people that were called to translate the King James Bible uh, uh, in, you know, in that period before 1611 when it came out included uh, more than 50 Hebraists of unparalleled caliber and stature. Uh, we, we don't have 50 Hebrews like that in the world today, anywhere. If you had got, rounded them all up, of that caliber, that quality, we don't have them. But these guys were trained, of course, in poetry as well as in theology. So they understood poetry well enough that even when uh, they were, in some cases, removed from seeing the biblical text in poetic terms, they understood it in Hebrew. They understood, for example, Hebrew parallelism as being the chief of the uh, of poetic devices, and, and, and they saw that the text was laid out in that way, and they said, we can do this in English, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we, can, we can set it out. We, we, have, we are able to do something like that reasonably well. So they, they did that. They, they set it out with close attention to detail, and subsequent scholars have often marveled at the way they capture it. Uh, I have a Jewish colleague uh, who, who still says, uh, and, and I have actually many Jewish scholars who, who still say the King James is still the best translation from a Jewish point of view when we're dealing with the Old Testament, because it captures not only the poetic devices like parallelism, 
But what it grasps is the tone. I think tone in poetry and Mm. tone in translation is one of the most important things to be able to convey accurately. And the tone of the Old Testament scriptures, the tone of the verse or the prose alike, uh, is high. It's not, uh, it's not shopping center dialect. Mm. It's not the sort of thing you hear at the mall. And I think one of the great uh, problems for uh, modern translation is, is that we are so desirous of getting things down to the lingo that people speak now that we move the character of the text so far in the direction of the character of the audience, uh, as we conceive of it anyway, that we rob the text of its dignity, of its majesty. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't have monarchies. We, we can't even grasp the idea of God as a king. But, you know, when you go to visit the king or you go and you're summoned before the king, uh, you don't go and grunge and you don't speak in uh, shopping mall uh, style. Uh, you bring out the best that you have in speech. You bring out the best that you can be uh, in such an environment. And that's the way, uh, for his for centuries, uh, two millennia, uh, the Scripture has been regarded by people whose task it was to turn it from Hebrew and from Greek uh, into English. But nobody has ever got that, both tone and the poetic devices so well as the people that translated the Hebrew part of the scriptures uh, back in before 1611. So, oh gosh, so the King James Bible is so effective because it's produced by an by an enormous team of theologian poet monarchists. Something like that, yeah. Which is probably as close as you can get to the nature of the original psalmist. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think that's really true. Um, You know, and uh, you know, it's uh, it it conveys its power and its literary richness, even to people, of course, as you have noticed, who are uh, literary people, uh, novelists, and poets who aren't Christians. Some of whom are even anti-Christian. But what do they quote? They quote the KJV. Yeah. This is true for modern Jewish poets. It's true for James Joyce, who is hostile to his Catholic faith. You quote the KJV, mm-hmm. because there, the, the residual uh, power, even for those who are not believers, the residual power and beauty of Scripture is made manifest in a way that it's not in lots of modern translations. I won't name them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's not as if they're they're attempting to achieve that goal and failing. It's just that no. it's often not even a goal that's a, that's attempted. That's correct. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I I love the first time that I observed that anyone in our culture, no matter at what level, um, no matter how secular, no matter how unchurched, if you ask them to imitate, you know, in some way imitate or do the voice of God it ends up becoming uh, an impression of the King James. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I've never tried that, but I believe it would work. <laughs> like people just sort of assume this is how God sounds. Yep. Uh, which might actually be deeply right. Well, uh, I f- 
our, our time is uh, drawing to a close, and I haven't even gotten into uh, <laughs> the contemporary era. So, dear listeners, uh, this book, uh, you you need to get one. <laughs> Scripture in the English Poetic uh, Imagination. Uh, we've only been skipping around uh, in the treasures that are here. So uh, just just know that in this uh, little hour of conversation that we've got, um, there, there are more things in this trove. Um, but on Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, we like to practice hospitality by giving our guests the last word. So, Dr. Jeffrey, what would you like our listeners to be thinking about as we wrap up our conversation today? Well, I'd like them to be thinking about uh, the character of biblical language. It might help to read it in the KJV or the NKJV or even the ESV, but read the scriptures with an eye to the quality and the tone that the scriptures have. And one of the ways to tune yourself to do that well is to memorize scripture and memorize it from one of the best translations. I strongly recommend that you um, take favorite psalms and you memorize them, commit them to heart. Uh, Take favorite passages of Isaiah, memorize them, commit them to heart. Uh, And do the same thing with parts of the New Testament, especially the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Memorize them, commit them to heart, for that's what Jesus invites his disciples to do. He says, when he says, incline your ear, uh, it's a it's a Hebraism. It means memorize it. Once you've memorized it and then you say it, it becomes poetry again. And that's what you ought to do. That's lovely. Well, dear listeners, I know I've enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you have as well. Uh, thank you for uh, accepting the invitation to come on Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Jeffrey. Uh, I know I've had a great time, and uh, I thank you for it. You're most welcome. Uh, God bless you and your listeners, too. Well, listeners, uh, if you have any questions or comments about this episode, we love your feedback. You can email them to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.org when those go live. Uh, We're also on Facebook. Uh, You can also find us uh, on Twitter as well, um, at chpodcast.com network, or sorry, uh, CH Podcast Radio, uh, Twitter. That's a new one. I'm still remembering it. Uh, In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs, and I've been having conversation with David Lyle Jeffrey about his book, Scripture and the English Poetic Imagination, published by Baker Academic this year. It's hot off the presses. I'll be posting a link to that book in the show notes on our blog. In the meanwhile, I wish you all grand weeks. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. So be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.